The thing I always talk about, you know, the famous Donald Rumsfeld statement, you know, there are the known knowns, the things we know we know, and the known unknowns, the things we know we don't know. But there were the unknown unknowns, the things we didn't know we didn't know. Rumsfeld is missing something there, and it's not the unknown unknowns. It's the unknown knowns. The things we don't know, we know. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimising business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. And today I am talking with and learning from Alistair Drybra. Alistair penned a monthly column for Management Today for about 10 years called Everything You Know About Business Is Wrong. And so he is a contrarian. He is a man who has taught himself to think differently so that he can help businesses that want to remaster themselves. And and I guess the drive for the clients that he works with, who are typically London-based digital agencies or technology businesses, there's two things. One is, are they forced to? So it has, has there been some market change or some change in their environment that has forced them to be in a position where they need to change, whether they like it or not? And I guess that builds on his previous work. He's a recovering finance director. He did maths at Cambridge and became an FD, but was never happy. And ended up specialising, I guess, in the high-octane, high-adrenaline world of business re-engineering, crisis management. And so I guess the change management, remastering business, which is the title of his second book, comes from building on that work. But the other thing is where people just think they want someone who's a bit weird to come and talk to them. So that somebody who can look at their business from a different perspective, a perspective that they can't see for themselves. And one of the things we talk about is is fundamental attribution error, which is really stopping people seeing the reality f- for what it is. They they see their reality, but they're not able to put themselves in other people's shoes. We talk about recruitment and we talk about whether whether people see curiosity as an opportunity or as a threat. And those that are threatened by change don't get curious, they just get angry. So fascinating conversation with Alistair. I'm sure you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Hi, Dominic. Um, lovely to be here. Um, I know, given the sort of 18 months we've had recently, lovely to be anywhere sometimes. <laughs> um, I'm Alistair Drybrother. 
Is that who you were expecting? <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, good. Okay, right. Now, I'll start in 1983 when I graduated from Cambridge with a degree in maths. Now, if I'd had any sort of proper careers of guidance back then, I would have become a journalist or a psychiatrist or a spy. Instead, I became an accountant. And I spent 25 years as probably the, the country's, maybe the world's least happy finance person. <laughs> I've been finance director of six companies, periods ranging from five years down to 10 days, um, technology businesses, um, creative agencies, manufacturing business, uh, even a private army. I gravitated towards crisis management, so I spent a lot of time going in and out of businesses where the previous FD had been found wanting and had been fired, and they're in some very serious trouble, and I helped them get out of that. So that started my interest in what I call you know, special circumstances, um, where business as usual is not an option. Um, I did my last... Um, full-time FD job in the year 2008, um, resigned from the um, Institute of Chartered Accountants the following year because I thought it was time to, to move in a direction that was more me. So I am now a consultant, a retained advisor. I help people who want or need the future to be very, very different from the way it the way it is at the moment. So that might be a sense that, oh, circumstances have developed in ways not necessarily to our advantage. A paraphrase of Emperor Hirohito after the second atomic bomb landed. <laughs> or it might be that we are, you know, we're a reasonably successful small to medium business, but it's getting boring. We're sure that there's more to life than this. And we want to we want to find where it is. And I, I do that basically by helping people look at their existing situation in different ways and find different, more effective ways of moving the business forward. So that, in a nutshell, is who I'm. I suppose I should also say I, uh, I never did an MBA. Uh, I spent the time that I would have spent on an MBA studying all sorts of things which I found much more interesting, like behavioural economics, continental philosophy, sociology, Taoism, military strategy, and the application of um, cognitive science to intelligence analysis. So, uh, a lot more a lot more interesting. Also, at least in what I do, a lot more useful. <laughs> the job that you had as FD for 10 days, is there a story there? Yeah. Um, basically a complete and utter personality clash. Ah, oh, okay. This, you're going to ask me at the end, what was the thing that I most would have wanted to know back then that I know now? And this is, this is actually, it. it's about personal fit in a situation. Now, the thing is, I was always a very effective finance director. When I came in, people found out a lot of things they didn't previously know about their business. And sometimes that scared the hell out of them. But uh, my accounts were always accurate. They're always on time. But I never really enjoyed the job. And for that reason, I was never really credible as a finance director. And I think that's, that, that, that's the reason that that job lasted 10 days it's not that there was, you know, they just think, oh, 
who the who the expletive deleted is this guy? I was listening to a podcast recently from a, a VC firm, which was, had an interesting concept I hadn't heard before. Everyone talks about product market fit. Not many people talk about founder market fit. Okay. But I think that's that's really important. Oh, yeah. I mean, along the way, a number of people have asked me if I would be interested in getting involved in their business and if it has anything to do with local well, if it has, if it's if it's prime customers of government, I can't I can't help them. Yeah, because I have yeah. no, I've got no desire to meet anybody else in the public sector. <laughs> it's just there's just an instant personality clash. So you're right, yeah. it's that. Yeah, it's that. It's this. It's this soft stuff that's actually really, really, really important. Yeah. So you and I were speaking before we pressed record about your views on the current economic climate. Yeah. yeah. And and it's funny, isn't it? Because the they government, they were predicting a recession. Did we go into a recession? I did a webinar the other week with uh, Greg Crabtree, uh, who is an accountant who enjoys being an accountant, but he's different. And, uh, and he was saying the companies that he works with in the US have got massive balance sheets, loads of cash, and he thinks the problem will be that they'll just run out of labor. As they, those that bounce back, they'll run out of labour. You know, what's what's your take on what's happening in the UK? I think it's probably it's probably quite similar. And you know, I, I I say it's not a recession, or that's not the most important thing that's happening. I think there's I, at the height of the lockdown, I was hearing things like you know we've seen five years of progress, technological progress compressed into a few months. Things we did that worked in August aren't working for us in September. And so rather than recession, you use this horribly clunky phrase, discontinuous change event. And I think the, the, the world has changed, but we haven't really begun to see the really significant consequences of it. Uh-huh. I've got a little example prepared. It's one that's very close to my heart. It's also quite simple to understand. It's my wife's psychotherapy practice. Right. Use this. I hope this use this as an analogy for an awful lot of businesses. So, pandemic hits. She can't see people in, in her consulting room anymore. So, they go on the phone or they go on to Zoom. No big deal. Everyone stayed with her. She's had. She's got quite a lot of people now who've started and successfully finished treatment without ever meeting her in the flesh. So that's the first level you've reacted. But then you see other things start to open up so all of a sudden because she's phoning online she's not restricted to people who are within reasonably easy traveling distance of north london so she could if she wanted build a national practice i mean globally probably not because of regulatory questions but national so that's really interesting how do you transform your marketing approach now to go national rather than local Bearing in mind, of course, you've got all the you've now got all these therapists in Glasgow and Edinburgh and Manchester and Birmingham and you name it, who've got the same opportunity to serve people in London. So there, you see, you've got to make some changes, different marketing approach. It probably means becoming very, very specialised in a way that it wasn't before. Um, so her specialization is women in their mid to late forties who've got the perfect storm of, you know, everything coming together at the same time, wanting a family, finding the right man, um, careers getting more demanding, hitting the glass ceiling maybe, 
parents getting elderly, people dying in disputes about inheritance, you know, that, that sort of particular stage of life, very specialised, but there's quite a lot of these. But all within travelling distance of North London. Yeah, yeah. But then, you see, you can start to go even further and you can start to challenge, at least, or rewrite some of the basic assumptions of the discipline. Now, one of the basic assumptions of the discipline is the 50-minute hour. Standard therapy session lasts 50 minutes. Now, that's not a completely stupid length of time for a therapy session, but it's based on the fact that somebody with no idea who, no idea when, decided that there would be 24 hours in the day. And so 50 minutes is five-sixths of one of those. And you need 10 minutes between sessions for one patient to leave before the next one gets there and to write up your notes or go to the bathroom and all the things you need to do between sessions. So doing everything online gives you the opportunity to experiment with different formats because it doesn't always have to be 50 minutes. So she's experimenting with, well, you get a 50-minute session once a week and then you can have a 15-minute session as a fill-in in between. And that can be booked maybe at very short notice. And so you, you go from just re- reacting in a pragmatic, obvious way to what's happened to responding to that, thinking, okay, I could now start looking for a national market. It doesn't have to be North London anymore. And you can, in order, in order to do that, you start changing the sort of things you do or the sort of the, the emphasis you give on different people. And then you can even start reinventing some of the basic assumptions of what you're doing. And I can talk about it, but, you know, we candidly, we, you know, we're at the very early stages of doing that. And I think in an awful lot of areas, the same thing is starting to happen and the people who are looking further ahead are starting to see it. Well, I think it's interesting because, again, I was, I was asking you who your core customer was. You said it was really the mindset around change. As you were talking there, I was just thinking, uh, speaking to somebody a little while ago about where they lived and they said, look, there's three restaurants where we live. And, you know, they all closed. And then, you know, one of them opened up as a takeaway and you could do takeaway food and they would sell you wine and beer. Later on, a second one opened up, but the third one never reopened. And the first one rented the car park from the local estate agent at weekends so that, you know, they had sort of alfresco dining as well. And I see that all the time. The, uh, you know, one of our clients in Southampton never closed, never stopped trading, and one of their competitors in in Bournemouth shut the doors for twelve weeks, and really is now a shadow of its former. There's there's something about the way people's minds are are wired. Everybody was executing previously against the the same rule book. Some people adapted and changed, and other people didn't. Yeah, absolutely. There's a real challenge and a real opportunity here. The thing I always talk about, you know, the famous Donald Rumsfeld statement about the invasion of Iraq, you know, there are the known knowns, the things we know we know, and the known unknowns, the things we know we don't know. But there were the unknown unknowns, the things we didn't know we didn't know. Rumsfeld is missing something there. And in fact, the thing he's missing is the thing 
that caused all the havoc in Iraq. It's not the unknown unknowns. It's the unknown knowns, the things we don't know we know. Ah, okay. So there was an assumption behind the invasion of Iraq that once we got rid of this nasty Saddam fellow, the Iraqi citizenship would would joyfully embrace some sort of version of Western liberal democracy. That was the assumption. The assumption was that the hard bit would be getting rid of Saddam. The difficult bit would be building democracy in Iraq. Now, if anyone had actually said that at the time, then somebody would have said, hang on, are you sure? Because that's not usually ha- what happens when you liberate people from nasty tyrants. <laughs> but it was just assumed that that was what was going to happen, and nobody questioned it. And that is why it turned into such an utter tragedy. It's these unknown knowns, or as one of my favourite French sociologists, Pierre Bourdieu, puts it, they're the things that go without saying because they come without saying. We all know them and we all assume them, and nobody actually said them out loud. And those are the sorts of things that I'm really, really interested in finding for businesses in the, in the current situation. So how do you go how do you go about doing that for a client? This is a very frustratingly vague answer, I know, but we're in a frustratingly vague area. By being unlike anyone else who's ever looked at the business, um, effectively by turning up with a completely different set of tools. And that's why I make a point of saying I never did an MBA. If you wanted to have a discussion, however, about various Taoist philosophers, I could do. I could talk about uh, Michel Michel Foucault and the order of things. I'm not for a moment suggesting we do. In a sense, my job is to read that stuff so that you don't have to. But what I'm trying to do is to bring a whole set of different tools, different lenses, however you want to express it, to look at this situation and see what could be different, and particularly to see what are we assuming here that is no longer the case. You've got some examples of where things you've, where you're able to say to people, this is something I think you will believe, or I can tell that you will believe it, but I don't think it's true. Yeah, I mean, let me give you a really, really simple, down-to-earth example. Software business could not collect money from its customers. Uh, These days, they'd call themselves fintech, but at the time, it was boring old banking software. And the customers were major investment banks pre-2007 crash, so some of the wealthiest organizations on the planet. Um, They just could not collect money from their customers. I use this as a case study, and I've tried it on, goodness knows, a couple of hundred business owners in various chief executive groups that I spoke to. And I say, here, there's a situation. What would you do about it? And I give them a bit of help because I say, I will role play the chief executive. So if you want any further information, anything, I'll, I'll, I'll provide it. Quite fun role playing that guy, actually, because he was the biggest, craziest psychopath. <laughs> anyway, so we go through this exercise and 
everybody, every time, comes up with, we've got to do something to or do something about the credit control department. Maybe they need more incentives. Maybe they need a good shouting at or a good kicking. Maybe they need to be replaced. Or maybe incentives. Maybe we need to give the customers incentives to pay on time or penalties for paying later. Okay. And then comes the big reveal. And I say, none of that worked. And none of it could ever work. Because the situation was, why were the customers not paying? One of three reasons. Firstly, they said the software does not perform in accordance with the documentation. The OMGEO gadget doesn't interface properly with the FX widget. Now, if you're a credit controller, you have no idea what that means. You need to get your development team to talk to their technical people and sort out whether there is a problem or whether they've just got the wrong end of the stick, okay? The second problem is professional services. Yeah, Fred was on site for 20 days last month, but I don't really think he knew what he was doing. We think we had 10 days useful work out of him, so we're only going to pay half the invoice, right? Or we've got seven different maintenance contracts, all done at different times, indexed in different ways, and you've just sent us a lump sum invoice, and we can't reconcile that with these seven contracts. Can you please explain? Again, you've got to go to the legal and contracts people. So the point was here, these poor credit controllers could not solve any of these problems. And the reason they couldn't collect the money was whenever they went to ask for help, they were always told, oh, go away, you boring accountants. We've got much more important things to do. This company basically belonged to the bank at this point. It was in breach. It managed to breach all its banking covenants. And when I tell this story, some people think, ooh, and other people, you notice, get really cross. Why do people get angry? Because I have challenged their assumption. Oh, I see. You, you give them the case study. They think they're right. You tell them they're wrong, and now they're unhappy. Right, yeah. That's right. Some people think, oh, aha, oh, that's interesting. And other people think, ooh. Curiosity. Okay, curiosity versus uh, you've told me I'm wrong. That's right, yeah. And behind that, there is a social psychology phenomenon, which some social psychologists will actually say is the foundation of their discipline. It's so important. It has its own Wikipedia entry. It's called the fundamental attribution error. And what it says is when we see a group of people who aren't performing, we are sort of hardwired to ascribe that to them. They're lazy, they don't care, they're useless, blah, 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 blah. And the situation might be, as in my little case study, that the system they're in effectively prevents them from being effective. And until we did this, this this problem had been going on for five years. Right, and this was, this was a global company. This was a global company. They had, they had offices. They had credit controllers who weren't performing in New York. They had credit controllers who weren't performing in Singapore. They had credit controllers who weren't performing in Luxembourg, Belgium, Vienna, uh, Bristol, and various other places I've forgotten. You know, five years as different people had come and gone across the whole damn world. It's pretty clear. It's a pretty good clue if you understand the, fun- the fundamental attribution error. This is not about individuals, because if it's generalized across a global organization and it persists as individuals come and go, but the approach had always been bring out the big stick, jump up and down and yell. In five years, these poor guys would get beat- beaten up for that. 
But you're right. I see it all the time. I mean, it's manifested, you know, if you're late, it's because, you know, there was traffic. If, well, if I'm late, it's because there's traffic. If you're late, it's because you didn't get out of bed early enough. Yeah, yeah. Particularly where organizations aren't built on trust. There was a great, God, is it, I think it's Blink. Malcolm Gladwell talks about this guy who could watch five seconds of a couple speaking and then tell you whether they were going to stay married or not. And what he said is underpinning that was that husbands and wives or couples who stay together, they view each other through rose-tinted spectacles. So they would ask the, the wife, are you a good cook? And she'd say, well, I'm okay. They'd ask the husband and he'd say, she's an amazing cook. There was sort of this rose-tinted spectacles, which was sort of an inversion of that fundamental attribution error, almost that sort of meant that you saw it the other way around. Whereas most of the time, it's always about me. It's never about you. Yeah, yeah fascinating so what did you do to fix it then was there a thing in the business where was it because finance was somehow subservient or distributed finance was a very low status part of the business the people who mattered were the development team and the salespeople. And this was one of the reasons, actually, why they were in trouble, because their previous FD wasn't, wasn't really up to the job. He was up to the job when he started at it, but the company was about five times larger and more diversified by now. He just hadn't managed to keep up. So, yeah, it was, it was partly to do with the, with the status of finance, but also to do with a very dominant chief executive who was very, very clear that if some if something isn't happening, then it's someone's fault and they need to they need to raise their game or leave. I mean this is something this is something that always amazed me actually, is that I spent years in these deeply, deeply distressed companies, like, you know, red ink all over the balance sheet, blood all over the walls. Um, had some very, very tense conversations with bankers and investors anyway. But the people running these organizations were ever so, ever so sure about everything. You might think that if your business was going to hell in a handcart, you could be maybe just a little bit open to the idea that something might need to change. But they weren't. It's interesting because so often when somebody brings me what they believe is some sort of conspiracy. You'll be able to tell me, you'll be able to tell me what this thing's called in a second, but I always just think it's, I, I always think cock up rather than conspiracy. Yeah, but, yeah. but so often if you tell somebody they're wrong or there's evidence that they're, they're wrong, they just double down on it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, um, this is very common as a, the case study I think of is one of these, you know, millennial cults are saying the, the religious cult of the world is going to end on a particular <laughs> yes. day. They all leave their job, sell all their professions, possessions and wait on the top of the hillside for the UFO to come and rescue them before the world explodes. Nothing happens, right? But they double down on it. You say, oh, we were so, because we were so devout and we prayed so much, uh, we managed to put off the evil day, but it's still going to come an infinite capacity for rationalization. And I think, yeah, I mean, the, the conspiracy, again, I think is, is because, you know, if it's clear that the world is not run by honest, competent, well meaning people, pretty obvious. So you've got two options. Either the world is run by incompetent, dishonest, 
not well-meaning people, or it's not actually run by anything at all. And that latter idea, you know, has been very well developed by French philosophers like Camus under the label of the absurd, the completely indifferent universe. But that's the thought that, you know, we're just living in a random world that is so scary that a lot of the time we prefer to believe that the world is run by... Satanists who are part of some some cult, you know, the uh, QAnon thing in the US, like... like Yes, it's going on, yeah, yeah. It's still going on, despite I think none of the predictions QAnon made ever came true. But you've got to believe something is going on rather than just accept the inherent randomness of it all. I think Personally, I think if you can get over that hump and actually go through the distress of believing the world is random and then recognise that it truly is, that can in a way be liberating, but that's maybe a, a, a topic for another time so you uh you spent a lot of your life writing a column yeah. in management today yes i did uh the title of it was everything you know about business is wrong and it covered things like the fundamental attribution error that i've example that i've given you and I, every month i would um take a piece of management conventional wisdom and disagree with it so i I said cost cutting, probably not a good idea. Cost plus pricing, horrible idea. I mean, I, 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 well, in the early days, I used to worry about running out of things to disagree with, but <laughs> I, I never did. I wrote it for about eight years. It was only when Management Today stopped doing the paper edition and went entirely online that I thought it was probably time to stop. And I, I developed, it, it developed it developed it into a book as well, uh, with the same title, Everything You Know is is, is, is Wrong. That did very well, got um, translated into, I think it's seven different languages, Spanish, Brazilian, Portuguese, Taiwanese, Chinese, Japanese. There's even a Vietnamese edition that I didn't know anything about until I discovered it by accident. Googling myself, the publishers had forgotten to mention that they'd sold the Vietnamese one. So you know, it's a bit, it's a, it's a bit like Boris Johnson's children. I don't quite know how many editions this, this, this <laughs> has, has spawned, but it's it's out there. Which one of those do you think was the most controversial? Which one did you get the biggest postbag about? Oh, I don't know. Um... People could treat it as a bit of a laugh. I think the one that the one that probably really, if you understood what it was about, the one that really would rock your world a bit was the, the fundamental attribution error. Stop thinking that it's individuals always who determine their performance and start looking at the system. And that's difficult for a lot of managers because A, it's more complicated, and B, it means they can't push the problem off onto someone else. Right, you know, if these credit control people aren't managing to do their job, what that means is as I, as finance director, have to go to the rest of the organization where I don't have a huge amount of clout and persuade them to prioritize requests for help rather than just firing some credit controllers, recruiting some new ones and pushing the issue under the carpet for a while. Yeah. 
you're working with, you work primarily with technology and digital agencies, digital businesses in, in and around London? Yes. And what what are you seeing coming out of coming out of lockdown, I guess? Are you are there any sort of trends? Yeah, I think the biggest trend is just the enormous difficulty of recruiting people. People have said, you know, we're having to use recruitment consultants for the first time. We're not getting results. It's very difficult even to get people to um, come and, you know, come and have a first interview with us, never mind accept a job offer. And then they accept a job offer, but they don't turn up. So as an immediate issue, that's the biggest, that's the biggest one I'm hearing. I think there's probably some, you know, there's some fundamental changes going to be happening in the next two or three years. But as an immediate issue, it is just this question of, you know, where on earth do we get the the people from? And I think we're going to have to be more creative there. I think we're also going to have to be much more conscious of, are we actually offering these people an attractive enough deal? A month or two ago, there was a whole issue of um, campaign magazine advertising, uh, advertising agency sector, a whole issue of campaign, which was about building back better. And the, the theme there was, you know, pre-pandemic, an awful lot of ad, ad agencies treated their staff horribly, like horribly, like Junior dragged in for an entire weekend while they were putting together a pitch just in case they needed some photocopying. And they put up with it at the time, but in this sort of, in this sort of environment, they, 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 they won't. So my, my hope, is that this sort of change will be permanent. And, you know, I have seen so much bad behaviour and so many horrible places to work and so many horrible managers. I just hope that this sort of changes will be will be permanent and um, people are going to have to realise, you know, if you want to employ talented people, you know what? You're going to have to be nice to them, which is interesting, actually. Because it brings me on to the topic of the my other book, which is called Business Remastered. It's basically about how to make your business more profitable, which could be applied to the question of how do you generate the same amount of profit from a lot fewer people? And there's a lot of really interesting things you could do there. I hate the phrase war on talent because I think mostly the people who use it, you wouldn't want to be in a foxhole <laughs> because they are the type of people who are – Blaming other people for their inability to hire talented staff. Yeah, yeah. But if you look at Indeed or, you know, you go and just search for a job ad, most 99% of job ads will be written the same way. We're an amazing company. Here's a list of roles and responsibilities. You've got to be a nuclear scientist, even though we're only after a receptionist. And it's just, it's just bollocks. They're all just bollocks. Yeah, there's an yeah, there's an awful lot of overqualification. There's an awful lot of prejudice as well. Um, like, for instance, this obsession, you know, this obsession, obsession with 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 you. You've got to, you've got to have a two one at least. Otherwise, you just don't get looked at. Now, I had a very interesting, very interesting conversation with the. Um, uh, the deputy chairman of a big advertising agency. He's a real contrarian. He was saying, actually, he's, speci- he's now specifically looking for interesting people who've got two twos. 
because you know sometimes people get tutus because they're not you know from places like Oxford and Cambridge. Sometimes people you know you know someone who gets a tutu from Oxford or Cambridge is not stupid. They've proved they're not stupid by getting in. They've either had an accident in the final in their finals, or they've spent their time doing all sorts of other things, like they were editor of the student newspaper, or they were producing plays, or something like that, which probably makes them much better, more interesting employees than the people who just concentrated on passing the exams. So that's that's sort of one contrarian view. I mean, my son is in the process of applying for the civil service fast stream, and you know they will accept people with two twos because they have their own very rigorous procedures for assessing whether you've got what it takes. So there's there's probably you know, there's a whole range of talent there. And that is before you get on to the whole question of whether, you know, whether people from ethnic minorities get a fair hearing. I mean, I, I have a client at the moment, a consultancy works in the field of, of, of diversity and inclusion, specifically as, as it relates to women. And they say there are still huge numbers of really, really talented women who are lost to serious employment, either because because the company completely screws up their maternity leave or menopause. Vast leakage of talent going on. So you've got the people who don't get a look at because for one reason or another, they don't fit the stereotype. And then you've got the people who basically leave in despair or disgust because something really rather... We do need people to have babies, don't we? Pre pre pandemic, the I was chatting to a guy who ran a technology business in Dublin, and he said the best thing that ever happened to him was these big US tech firms turned up with their statutory minimum maternity pay, because they hired, they had the draw to hire you know top talent, Google, Facebook, hire this top talent in baby comes along they don't then want to be in the office five days a week so he says look work from home work do a day do two days do three days a week ring me right we'll if you if if we think it's any good we'll work out how to come and work with me and he said he just, that's just built an enormous pipeline for him of amazingly talented people and it's your point about your wife's business it's about finding a niche yes and and then and then mining mining a niche for talent yeah, yeah. And just, just being a little bit unstereotyped. Yeah. I do think if you write quality, if you write interesting job ads, you'll get interesting people apply. What else is going on in your world? Very interested in the question of pricing at the moment. There are some businesses like Making Baked Beans where you can't really do that much. You know, one brand is much like another. But if you once you get into creative fields, it's possible for somebody to come up with a solution which takes no longer to produce but is ten times more effective than someone else's so-so solution. And I am really interested in helping those people get paid what they're truly worth and too many people are still getting paid per hour, and that's just wrong. I mean, the example I, I use there, my, this, I, wish, this, I wish this were me, but it, it wasn't. This is a Viennese psycho, psychoanalyst called Victor Frankl. He got a new patient, 
uh, in, in Vienna after the war. An American diplomat just been posted there, and this this gentleman was very unhappy with his work, constantly having arguments with his superiors because he he didn't agree with American foreign policy, which he had to represent. <laughs> I think you may have got the punchline long before anyone else did. Anyway, now, the point is he'd been in analysis in his previous posting in New York for five years. And his New York analyst took the view that, well, these problems with authority, arguments with your supervisors, they're all about unresolved issues in your relationship with your father, which might seem a bit odd, a fairly orthodox analytic interpretation of the, uh, for the time at least okay and they've been round and round in this for five years just making the poor man more and more unhappy and frankel though takes a different view after a couple of sessions he just asks well is there any reason you have to be a diplomat couldn't you choose some other profession and the man thinks and said yes well, I, I could i could change any changes and they, they're in touch for several years and he's very happy. So here's someone who's come along and achieved more in a few sessions over a few weeks than the previous person who would have had probably at least 500 sessions twice a week for five years. About what happens? Dr. Frankel gets paid for three or four sessions for transforming the rest of this man's life, and the one in New York gets paid for 500 and there's a lot of that going on in the creative sector. Well, you said earlier one of the things you hate is sort of cost plus pricing, but also there's the, um, I don't know, a lack of worthiness, right? Or, you know, you're a small business, so you have to compete on price, you think. And so often with clients, I was talking to a CEO this morning who's just put through some big price rises for all of their work. And I said, how's it gone? And he said, nobody's noticed. And it's just, and so then it's like, well, now he's just, of course, thinking, what's the, you know, what, I wish I'd done this a little while ago. Yeah, I mean, recently, I, have a, I recently did some work with one business. Um, they had a one product, a strategic analysis, which they were more or less giving away for three, four, five thousand um, pounds. I pointed out to them that it would it was actually enabling their clients, major brands, to identify entirely new virgin markets who no one was talking to. Hugely valuable. Hundreds of thousands of pounds. Forty six thousand for the last two. Yeah. Another one, they got a twenty thousand pound a month retainer for work that they were previously doing for free. Oh, it's just you, you, you come in and you help people see this sort of stuff, um, which, again, I think goes back to the question of how do you do, what, what do you do if you can't get all the staff you need? And the answer is just make sure that the ones you have are working as far as you can on this sort of massive impact, low effort work. And if you could get even you know get them even working a third of their time on that sort of stuff, you would make so much money. You could afford to pamper them so completely that they would never leave you. Yes, don't give them crappy clients to work with. Yeah, basically, you know, if I were junior account person going to uh, looking for a job in a creative agency, one of the questions I'd be asking for was. Um, when did you last fire a client for being a jerk? 
And if that wasn't happen, if that hadn't happened, I'd be a bit worried. Alistair, what's uh, what's a book that somebody should pick up and read? What is a book that somebody should pick up and read? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a range, actually, depending on, on how far out you want to go. I'm not a huge fan of the current straight state of strategy literature, but there are, a, as, um, as a woman, a Columbia professor called Rita McGrath, who I think is the exception to that, and she's the everyone else thinks about strategy as like let's 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 find some hill and build a fort on it and then defend that whereas Rita McGrath observed that that's not usually what strategy looks like these days because everything is happening on shifting sands so she's got a very different approach which is about responding and flexibility so there's a, there's a couple of her books i'm afraid whose titles escape me but we can we can find seeing around corners seeing around corners yes and maybe the other one's the end of competitive advantage yeah that's i think is a that is a good management book if you'd like to go a little bit further this is still stuff you'd probably find in a, in a, in a good general bookshop um Great fan of, 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 of Taoist philosophers, Chuang Tzu and Lao Tzu. Power that can be spoken of is not the true power. And he, you know, as, um, if you wanted to get into that sort of stuff, I think there's another one, actually, I can see it on the shelf here. As a sort of introduction, here is this, this, this is Edward Slingerland, Trying Not to Try. This is a good introduction to that sort of thought. Very straightforward, and it will give you an idea as to whether you might find that sort of thing interesting then if you want to go really really far out and this is probably as far as you can get this is this is the sort of like the print equivalent of magic mushrooms is um Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari a thousand um plateaus these are two incomprehensible Frenchmen Deleuze was a philosopher and Guattari was a psychoanalyst and they wrote this book and it, it's 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 hard to describe it's impossible to describe it, it's full of interesting concepts um it is completely incomprehensible but compelling you read it and you no idea you think you've no idea what they're on about but you want to keep going to find out more and more and then you start to realize that you're applying so these concepts you didn't think you understood you're starting to apply particularly trees and rhizomes which is very much what the current world is like but anyway that's that is a real head trip Alistair, that's brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. Okay, well, thank you. Actually, I, sorry, I forgot to get my shameless plug in. Can I, can I quickly sneak, sneak that in? Plug, plug. I hope people listening to this by now will have got an idea of um, who I am and the sort of thing I do. Some of them have probably logged off by now, and that's probably the best thing for all concerned. But um, if you think some of this goes beyond interesting and could actually be useful, very happy to do a number of individual consultations if you feel that you have reached that point where the, you know, the, the level of weirdness has reached a point that normal methods just can't deal with it. 
I'll very happily give you 45 minutes to try and help you make sense of it. Um, there is a URL for it, which is www.wtfconsult.com. Very good. And we'll, we'll put that in the show notes as well. Yeah, put that in put that in the show notes, and that that will take you straight to my online diary, and um, you can you can book something up. I've got I've got I've got six slots there in September, first come first serve. But I'll I'll very happily talk to anyone who's crazy enough to sign up. <laughs> Alistair, that's brilliant. Thank you very much indeed for that. Thank you. It's been fun. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.